Welcome to the People of Pathology podcast. I'm Dennis Strink. On this podcast, I speak with interesting people in pathology, laboratory medicine, and forensic medicine. Back when I started the show, I had just read the book, The Queen of All Poisons, and I remember thinking, wouldn't it be great if someday I could get Dr. Magnani on the show? Well, guess what? Today, my guest is Dr. Barbara Jean Magnani. We're going to talk all about her career as a writer, or her fourth career, as she calls it. We'll spend a little time talking about her three other careers, and then give you a little sneak peek of the new book she has coming out early next year. Then after the show, stay tuned for a trailer from my interview with Michael Schubert. But right now, here's Dr. Barbara Jean Magnani. I'd like to start a little bit about your career, and we're, we're just going to kind of gloss over it a little bit because there's a lot here, but I just picked out a couple of things. So you're currently the professor of anatomic and clinical pathology and director of toxicology at Tufts University School of Medicine. Yeah, and part of your work is as a toxicology consultant. So I'm, I'm curious about the consulting part. Like, how does how does that work? How, how, how do these consultations come to you? Okay, well, I'm going to give you a little background on that because I think that part is interesting. Okay. My interest in toxicology consultation really started back in about 1990 when I became associated with what was then the Massachusetts Poison Control Systems. And I would meet weekly with the poison control and we would review cases. And I learned so much from these amazing medical toxicologists. And what they got from me was a laboratory person. So, you know, they understood then how lab testing works. Okay. And after that, when I was at the MGH, we ended up, I would round sometimes on patients that had toxicology issues. And this was kind of unusual at that time. This would have been in the late 1990s. Okay. And seeing pathologists on the floor at that time was very startling sometimes to, uh, to the clinical staff. So what happened is over a period of time, I developed uh, a series of templates, if you will, and also information about laboratory testing. And when I got to Tufts, I ended up giving a lot of grand rounds or just talks to different groups like OBGYN or the emergency department or uh, medicine and teaching them a little bit about toxicology. And the next thing I knew, people were calling me, emailing me and asking me if I could do a consultation on their patient. Oh, so this kind of developed sort of organically, like it wasn't an official position. No, you know, where there's both a niche and a need is a good place to start. Nobody was providing toxicology at any of the places I had worked in terms of consultation. So this seems so natural for me. The way it works now is that clinicians will email us with the information, patient's name, what their question is, what the problem is. and then. I read the medical record. We do the testing. We actually select what tests are the follow-up tests. They leave that to us. The clinicians leave that to us. Okay. And then when all the results come back, I can put it all together and synthesize, you know, what's going on with the patient. And by the way, I've trained a fabulous fellow over the years who is now a staff member, a faculty member, and he's doing a lot of this work now, and he's terrific. So it's definitely something that the clinicians really 
recognized as a need. Okay. And I know you, you also, for a while, you were chair of pathology, the pathologist in chief. Was that at Tufts also? Yes. Um, I had been before that chief at BMC, Boston Medical Center, and then I moved to Tufts. Okay. And I started there as also chief and then became chair and pathologist in chief. That's right. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and, w- and what was that experience like? Was that like, did you en- enjoy doing that? It's a lot of administrative work. I do enjoy that. I like working with people. Uh And that's one of the interesting things, if I can relate it back to the question you asked me about the toxicology consults. I think, again, what was surprising to most people was that a pathologist, you know, didn't shy away from seeing patients or meeting with the team in the MICU or the PICU uh, or on the medical floors. And I even saw patients in, in the outpatient clinic. And oh. so part of this, yeah, part of this getting to know people as as my staff, my faculty as chair was really great. And I think my objective as chair was really to bring pathology, you know, to the forefront, let people understand what pathologists do. Sure. I, that's important because, uh, you know, a pathologist that actually sees patients <laughs> is pretty rare. I, I think that's a lot of the reason why we're, you know as a field, we're kind of forgotten about a lot of times. Exactly. And I I know you have questions about the visible pathologist, and I have believed in that for a very long time. But after I did this job, and I've been in medicine and pathology for so many years now, uh, and I loved my job uh, doing all these things, but I found that I wanted to, to write fiction, and I just never had enough time to write. And that's not counting the book chapters I've done or scientific papers. So I made the decision at the end of December in 2017 that I was going to step down. And I told my administration that I wanted to step down as chair so that I could embark on a career writing fiction. I'll have to tell you, I don't think anyone believed me. Uh, I think everybody didn't think I was serious at the time, but I was. And I said, well, I'll give you a year. Uh to find my replacement. And it actually took them a year and a half to find someone. And during that time, I wrote and published The Queen of All Poisons, juggling between the two jobs. Uh, I wanted to go kind of back in time a little bit here. Now, you initially studied biology, uh, and then you earned a master's degree in marine environmental science. And from what I read about you, that was during this time that you became interested in toxins. So how, how did that happen? Uh, yeah, I had um, the very good fortune as a graduate student to work with a brilliant scientist who was one of the founders of something called the Environmental Defense Fund. Mm-hmm. And they led the, both a scientific, a legal, and strategic campaign to have DDT, which was a pesticide, banned because of what it did to the environment. And that, as you know, came to light from Rachel Carson's book. She was a marine biologist and she wrote a book, Silent Spring in 1962. And and this talked a little bit about how the thinning of the eggshells, right, resulted in a demise, if you will, of the songbird. So hence Silent Spring. Anyway, this professor that I worked with was one of these, um, you know, as I said, 
a pesticide researcher and understood what was going on. And so my thesis worked also on organopesticides, chlordane and heptachlor. And I looked at how it affected algal systems and re really got a good understanding of how certain toxins can affect the environment. So I think that's where this initially stemmed from. I know, I know the book that you mentioned, Silent Spring, and uh, Rachel Carson, her, a lot of her work sort of influenced the, the creation of the Environmental Protection Agency. Is that, is that right? Yeah, I, I, I'm not exactly sure how that started, but the, as I say, the Environmental Defense Fund, which has since changed its name, oh, okay. really looked at fighting and creating this awareness of what pesticides did to the environment. And how they affected us as people. And that research continues today mm -hmm. uh, in terms of looking at the association for pesticides and certain cancers. Oh, sure. That's right. Okay. And now back back at this time, were you were you already interested in writing or was that something that came later? That's sort of a little bit of a funny story. If I can roll back a little bit. Okay. When I was in high school, I was very much interested in both science and creative writing. And I did a fair bit of creative writing as a high school student. And when it came time to, uh, to pick a major for college, my guidance counselor said, you know, you really should just do English. That's where young women go. They don't go into science. And besides, you're not smart enough to go into science. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. So I said, okay. Um, so I actually went to started college uh, my first year as an English major. I loved it. It was great. But I also was taking science courses. And at the end of the first year, I said, you know, this is crazy. I like science and I'm going to just stick with it. So I made up the extra courses I missed during the first year and uh, and then went on to get my degree in um in, uh, in biology, as you mm -hmm. said. But if you look back a little bit, I think of myself as my writing career now, which you're talking about, is really being like a fourth career. Because my first career when I graduated college was really teaching. And I did go into teaching. I taught high school and I also taught college. Oh, okay. And then yeah. And then after I worked through my master's degree and when I was working on my PhD after that, I really worked as a scientist. So I consider being a scientist my second career. And then I went to medical school after that. Okay. And being a pathologist was my third career. And now tying it all together, science, writing, I'm hopefully going to be successful at writing uh, fiction. Right. <laughs> Okay. So it wasn't like you intended to go to medical school all along that, that kind of came to you later. Yeah. I never intended to go to medical school. It was never something I wanted to do. I think when I was a graduate student, I had to do the first year of medical school. So sitting alongside me were medical students and I was taking all the same courses and I thought, Hmm, I guess I could do this. <laughs> so I, you know, so after I, finished my PhD, I went back and, and, and went to medical school. Okay. And how did you come to choose pathology as a specialty? Well, again, I think growing up in the laboratory as a scientist, I felt so comfortable in the lab. It really was something I enjoyed. And so 
pathology seemed like the natural fit for me. I will say I was tempted by psychiatry. And I think there's a real crossover between pathology and psychiatry because I think they're people who like to figure things out, who like puzzles. And yeah. when I talk to medical students, I say, um, I tell them that if pathology is great if you like the chase, meaning you like to figure out what's going on, but you don't want to manage, you know, the cases, the patients, but you can figure out and help by making the diagnosis. Okay. That, that makes a lot of sense. All right. Let, let's get into the writing then. So back in, in 2009, you wrote a series for the Journal of Clinical Chemistry that actually in, introduces us to the character, Dr. Lily Robinson. So, so how, how did this happen that you came to write this series? So um, you probably know that in 2009, um, Nader Rafai, ed, as editor-in-chief in the Journal of Clinical Chemistry, he asked me to write this series in clinical chemistry, and he wanted a series on toxicology, but he wanted it to be not just educational, he wanted it to be entertaining so that people could learn toxicology in a fun way. Mm -hmm. So I created a character, Lily Robinson, and in each episode of the journal, uh, she would use a particular poison to eliminate a terrible person, a terrorist, whatever you want to say. Right. And then uh, the readers would have to write into the journal, uh, try and figure out what poison she used and uh, how she did it. And that was really fun to read the letters that people would submit or the emails that people would submit on what they thought was going on. And then in the next issue, I would have what I called recollections, mm -hmm. where Lily in the first person would tell you know, tell her story, how she did it. And then I could give a review of the toxins. It was a very scientific, you know, the recollections were written really for scientists and chemists. So the layperson would not really uh, appreciate that as much. Right. Yeah. They're, they're fairly technical. Right. Exactly. And, and I think the feedback that I got from those was that people really enjoyed the stories, but the science was a little bit too much for them. And so I was asked, really, could you make this a uh, little bit less scientific, but still give us the information, you know? And I think that's where I started thinking about doing a novel. Okay. Some of the installments of the, the series from Clinical Chemistry became Lily Robinson and the Art of Secret Poisoning, which was published in 2011. Was it all of the installments or, or just? Just a select few. No, it was all the ones that were in clinical chemistry plus a new story. Okay. And that was the, the, the last story. And so, uh, yeah, we, I decided to put it into a book and that ended up being sold through AACC. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of the clinical chemists, as I said, enjoyed that, uh, forensic toxicologists as well. But it was really for that kind of a niche market. It wasn't for the general lay person. Right. Okay. Now, I, I want to talk a little bit about Lily Robinson because she seems in a lot of ways like you based her on yourself. And I know I, I've read some stories like people kind of, as you were doing these installments, people kind of figured out that it was really you because initially you you wrote them anonymously. Is that is that right? Yeah, that's exactly, exactly right. Uh, so the first year... 
that the journal carried these stories, it, it did not come with my name on it. And we tried to have people sort of guessing who this pathologist or chemist was that was that were writing the, the Lily Robinson series. Mm-hmm. And then in I think when we had a the AACC meeting was out in California, we were going to reveal who the person was. A lot of people sort of guessed it was me because of the shoes, quite honestly. <laughs> because I do have a lot of stiletto shoes that I love and wear. And of course, I gave that characteristic to Dr. Robinson as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and there's a lot of not not only descriptions of the shoes, but the the clothes that she wears and in some of the stories like the the food and the the meals and, and things like that. How did you develop the the Lily Robinson character? Like how much of you is is in her? And are there influences from other people as well? Well, I would say certainly her fashion sense sort of came from me, although I wish I could afford all the things that Lily Robinson wears. <laughs> uh, I don't, uh, I, I don't have uh, the ability to do that. But I would say that the important things were that her uh, viewing pathology again. She's a visible pathologist. She, she does. She sees patients. She ha- does toxicology consultation. I mean, all of that is really taken, uh, you know, based on things that I do. Obviously, there's a part of her that is not me, and that's the fantasy part of the medical thriller part. Okay. Um, but it's fun in writing to be able to make your character anything that you want. Because she is kind of based on you and you, she's put in these fictional situations did you find it difficult to sort of write up? It, it's like basically you're writing about yourself in a made up situation. Was that difficult to do? Or did you find that because it was you, it was, it was easier. You know, I honestly do not think of Lily Robinson as me. I really don't. When okay. I write, I just think of her as her own character. And so that gives me free reign to put her anywhere and have her do anything. So I never confuse myself with her. Okay, so then you found it. I, I guess you, you would you would have found it easier to to write about her that way. Okay, yeah. so the book and in the series then also introduce us to a few other characters that that then return in the most recent book, The Queen of All Poisons, such as Doctor John Chile and um, the dark haired man JP, and some of the mm-hmm. stories from Lily Robinson and the Art of Secret Poisoning are also incorporated into The Queen of All Poisons. So how did you decide like which characters to, to carry over and which, which of the stories also? You know, I, I kept the characters that I felt were interesting and would be important going forward. Okay. Uh, clearly, these characters, and you'll find this out as you read more, become more important in Lily Robinson's life. And so uh, the beauty of having the little stories, as I call them, is that I can go back there and pick various things out when I'm writing the next novel so that I'm always tying the reader back to the original stories, the original people. Mm-hmm. And as time goes on, you'll see how these Don Chi Lee and the dark-haired man become more important and prominent in Lily Robinson's life. Right. And even the, the parts of the 
the original stories that you included, they're not exactly the same. They're in some cases they're a little embellished. There's a little more uh, backstory there, so they blend right in with with the story. Right. So in the Queen of All Poisons, I had to give some backstory, if you will, to what Lily did, and fully aware that most people have not read The Art of Secret Poisoning again because it was for a certain niche audience. Mm-hmm. Um, I felt that I could pull some of those stories out, incorporate them as the backstory so people understood what Lily would do on these missions and uh, and help, you know, flesh out there for her, her, her character. Okay. You know, and, and many of the toxins that she uses in both The Art of Secret Poisoning and as they go forward were toxins that I was familiar with when you asked me, you know, how did I get interested in this, you know, in my postdoc time, I worked with a lot of these toxins, saxitoxin, tetrodotoxin, cone snail toxins, because I worked in the lab of uh, another brilliant scientist, which I had the advantage of working with, who is a channel biophysicist and was someone who actually discovered the, the mechanism of how local anesthetics work. And so many of these toxins are used as, you know, potential anesthetics. That was the thought. Mm-hmm. And that's what we were working on. Um, so I bring that in to Lily's character. And so that's why in the, in the story, she's using all these exotic toxins. Right. Okay. You've stated in previous interviews that uh, Michael Crichton had an influence on your writing. So in, in what way was he, was he an influence? Yeah, I think he was a big influence on my writing. First, he was a physician. And he wrote with a certain logic and clarity that I truly appreciated. But what I really liked about his writing is I always felt that after I finished reading one of his books, I felt like I learned something. I know that he would take certain scientific things and stretch it. But I love the fact that he was doing a little bit of teaching when he uh, wrote his stories. And I truly like that. And I'm hoping that I'm doing the same thing. I like throwing in a little bit of medicine and science, a lot of the background information that you read about, particularly in the second novel. And also in the first one, by the way, The Queen of All Poisons, Mm -hmm. where I talk a lot about poisonings used by the Russians. Those are all based on facts. So hopefully the reader is learning a little bit and enjoying it at the same time. One of the things that Crichton is known for is he had this elaborate way of creating his plot and he would create the plot first and then write the story on top of the plot. Did you employ that method as well for the Queen of All Poisons? Uh, no, actually, I, I've read that Michael Crichton did this thing with the index cards. It yeah. is funny that when at that time when I went to medical school, he went to medical school, we used to write all our patient information and little pearls, as we call them, on these little index cards and stick them in our lab coat pockets. And he apparently did the same thing with story storylines. He'd have little ideas that would come and he'd fill up a shoebox and do it. Was, no, I think it's brilliant that he did that. I'm what they call an organic writer. And basically, I have an idea of where I want to go. I kind of write out the story points and think about what I want to happen. but. What ends up happening with me is, even though I have an idea where I'm going, I inevitably get off the track 
And I'm just as surprised as the reader sometimes what's happening in the story or what's happening with a character. So you get to a twist point and you go, oh, I didn't see that coming. And I get to that same twist point and I go, wow, I didn't see that coming either. (laughs) (laughs) I have heard that from other writers. Like you're, they say that you're not actually writing the story. You're just kind of, you're transcribing it really. Like it comes to you and you, you're, you're, like you said, you're, you're reading it just as we are as you're going along. Right, right. They sort of call that organic writing. So, you know, I don't know if it's the best way to do it, but I, I, again, I start out with a little outline, but I inevitably detour here and there as things, as things happen with my characters, like it would in real life. You mentioned a little bit ago how you are hoping that the readers can learn something from, from the queen of all poisons. And you do have those things. You have like real pathology situations and jargon. I mean, there's one scene, the uh, EMT comes into the, the the grossing room actually, and is talking to the pathologist in there, which, uh, by the way, your, your fictional pathologist should really hire a PA just saying, <laughs> but, the, but there's things like that. And a lot of like the, the jargon and things like that, it comes from, you, you put it as part of the dialogue between two or more of the characters, uh, such as, you know, Dr. Robinson talking to Dr. Becker or she's talking to Dr. Lee. Was this like intentional that she wanted to do it this way? Yes, very much so. And again, that little trick I learned from Michael Crichton, he does that as well. And not just between two doctors, let's say, but also between someone who's sort of a non-science person and Lily Robinson. So I could write a whole passage of just explaining the medical stuff that's going on. And the non-science reader would sort of their eyes would glaze over like, oh, can we get past this passage? But if you write it in a certain way where uh, Lily Robinson is explaining something and there's this back and forth so that the reader can understand when you're talking about eosinophilic cells on the slide or in the tissue and and the other one says yes i see that pink pink stain there you mm-hmm. know it it puts it down for the reader and it makes it so that that it's more understandable and actually i've turned turned a little bit of this uh technique into a fun thing i think anyway i i enjoyed it uh in the next book where it's almost becoming a a comical signature characteristic of Lily Robinson, where when she's with her non-science colleagues, they get after her to stop with these science lectures and just tell them in English what's going on. Come on, doc, <laughs> give it to us, you know? Uh-huh. Oh, that's funny. Um, I, I'm looking forward to that. We mentioned Michael Crichton a couple of times. What, what is your favorite uh, Michael Crichton novel? Gee, I, you know, I love Jurassic Park. Um, When I read that, this is pre the movie. I just thought it was so brilliant. But I've read everything that he's done. And I, I, and, and that's what I said. One of the things that's great about him is that he, he could research out any different topic and put together a book. It wasn't just, uh, you know, so formulaic, um, like some other writers that I've, I've read who are for physicians. Yeah. I just thought he was just so brilliant. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He definitely, um, you know, stuck with science and, and medicine in a lot of ways, but it was, it was pretty varied the, the topics that he covered. Right. Yeah. Okay. 
there's one particular scene in The Queen of All Poisons that I want to talk about because I, I think it's really important, and that's the career fair scene. So what it is, Dr. Robinson goes and speaks. She's on a panel of women professionals, and they, go, they all go to speak at a career fair at an all-girls high school. And like you've mentioned earlier, you're a big proponent of pathologists being more visible. And obviously, that's something you do in your own work. Why was it important to show Dr. Robinson doing this the same type of thing? Well, I think that scene introduces um, to the reader a little bit about what pathologists do. And again, through all the books that I'm writing, I try to explain and show uh, what pathologists do in the real world. So I think, as you said, they should be more visible. I don't think that many patients or the public in general still understand uh, how pathologists contribute to their health care. It might be getting a little bit better, but it's not where I would like it to be. Mm-hmm. I think most of what the public knows about pathologists, it's what they've seen on television or in film. And that's very one dimensional and it's not always accurate. So in that scene, you know, Lily sort of talks a little bit about all the things that pathologists can do. And, you know, you know that I that line from the book where pathologists are the invisible thread in the weave of healthcare, they confirm the diagnosis for better or for worse. Yeah, Lily says that, you know, and hopefully at the end of reading Queen of All Poisons, the reader also has a better understanding of pathology in general. Not You have to separate out, obviously, Lily's covert life, but we're just talking about in general. And even in the next book, I talk about pathology in the, in the same way. And, you know, people just have to understand there, we just play so many roles right. in, in taking care of the patient. Right. I think, you know, I don't want to forget about the fact that this is a group of women you know, inspiring a group of girls, young women in, into their careers. And in fact, uh, Dr. Robinson does inspire one of the characters along a uh, medical school path, which without giving away any of the book, that's a brilliant piece of foreshadowing right there. Oh, thank you. Thank you. You'll learn more about that in the next book, what happens. Oh, okay. Great. Right. You mentioned a little bit earlier the, the how you kind of give small pieces of Dr. Robinson's past throughout the book. And it sounds like a pretty complicated past at that. So without giving away too much of the plot, did you have that backstory together uh, before you were you wrote the book or did that kind of come as you were going along? Yes, the backstory was there in The Art of Secret Poisoning. And so I continued that in The Queen of All Poisons. And it is a complicated backstory. And one of the things to consider is that people are complicated. They are complex. And you don't always learn everything about a person when you first meet them. So as you go along in the queen of all poisons, you learn a little at a time, as you say, over time. Uh, You learned maybe very little about Lily's background in the art of secret poisoning. And when you read the next book, you'll learn even more about characters, their relationships, their struggles, their triumphs. You know, they have doubts, they have sets, they have family tragedies. They have everything that we have in real life. Well, let's talk a little bit about the next book then. That is, it's called The Power of Poison. 
And so it, it, have you finished writing this new book or is it, or what stage is it? Is it? So the power of poison will be out next March, 2021. Okay. So it's, it's already done. And what I can say without trying to spoil anything is that many of those burning questions you may have had at the end uh, after reading uh, the queen of all poisons are going to be answered in the power of poison. And, but the problem is at the end of uh, power of poisons, there'll be still more questions. Okay. So does that mean there'll be another book after that? Yes. And I can just give you a tiny bit about the plot here. Okay. Um, In the power of poison, Dr. Robinson is asked to assassinate a high-level Chinese missile scientist who is on course to sell his novel technology to the North Koreans. And so sort of in the background, what happens is that on the way to this assignment, Lily also runs into some old foes along the way. And there'll be some characters, of course, that are brought back from the Queen of All Poisons. And in addition to the thriller part, really the novel continues, you know, to explore those personal relationships that you learn about in The Queen of All Poisons. And a couple of the themes are, you know, how well do you really know someone? Maybe they're not who you think they are. Okay. And also Lily uh, reiterates her mantra of, you know, the good of the many outweigh the good of the one. That's her thing. You know, why is she doing what she does? Because she sort of needs to save the world for uh, for certain reasons. Okay. Boy, my, my, my mind is spinning right now. I have a lot of questions that would probably give away the book. So we'll just leave it at that. Right, one other thing I wanted to just touch on a little bit. The last, I guess it's not really a chapter, but the last part of the book you've got, it's it's a list of Lily's poisons. And that reminded me quite a bit of some of the stories that became the art of secret poisoning. Is that kind of how that went? You like, you sort of list them and then explain what they are and what they do and things like that. Right. So what I did is I took some of the information from the recollections in the art of secret poisoning. And if you recall again, what we said, that was written more for scientists. And I tried mm-hmm. to put it in a more layperson friendly uh, jargon, if you will, at the end of the book. So for those people who were interested in learning a little bit more about some of the poisons, they could go there. And then I had a little section for the scientist in you, for, in you which was a little bit more technical. Yeah, I definitely recommend any everybody go and read the, the Queen of All Poisons. It's a great book. I really enjoyed it. And I'll put a link in the show notes if anybody wants to pick it up. And definitely, uh, if you do, write a review of that. The audiobook for The Queen of All Poisons will be coming out next year at some time. I don't know exactly the date. Uh, it will kind of coincide, excitingly enough, with The Power of Poison, okay. which will be coming out in March. Okay. That, yeah, that's great timing. So The Queen of All Poisons then came out in 2019, and that is the publisher is? And Circle Publications. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Well, it'll be out from Encircle Publications. Okay. Great organization to work with. Dr. Magnani, uh, th- thank you f- so much for being here today. Th- this has been great. Can I read you one little thing? Oh, yeah, 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 absolutely. One one little section from The Power of Poison. It's actually one or a few little sentences. Um, okay. Just to give you light, it says, And here I am at the intersection of obligation and conscience. 
One night to pretend otherwise. This night, I'm someone else. Someone whose life path was so straight that the future was always there in plain sight. I look out the window and see the moon full in the sky, round and bright, with a ribbon of dark clouds rippled across its face like the mask of the Lone Ranger. From The Power of Poison. I think when this book comes out, I'll have to have, have you come back on the, on the podcast and we can talk about that one too. Okay, that'd be great. Thank you so much, Dennis. Great big thanks to Dr. Mugnani. I really enjoyed speaking with her. I'll have a link in the show notes if you'd like to pick up The Queen of All Poisons and to Dr. Mugnani's website as well. The show notes are at peopleofpathology.podbean.com. And don't forget, you can always follow this show on Twitter at peopleofpath. And if you like The Queen of All Poisons, and I think you will, make sure you write a review for it. And then share this episode with someone you know. And together, let's inspire the next generation of pathologists and laboratory professionals. I'm a member and the CFO of the American Association of Pathologist Assistants. This show does not necessarily represent the views of the AAPA and receives no financial support from the AAPA. Thank you very much for listening, and I will talk to you next time on the People of Pathology podcast. And now here's a trailer from my interview with Michael Schubert. The third issue uh, that first year, the cover story was the last respite of the socially inept and how your whole sort of team was a little reluctant to use that title. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, of course, that's not how we perceive pathology and lab medicine, and that's not how anyone in the discipline would perceive it. But right. um, it was striking in that it was a quote from a department head, not just another physician, but another highly ranked physician was essentially referring to pathology and laboratory medicine as if it were unimportant or a last choice. And we thought that was really striking okay. and something that was worth highlighting. And we knew it was perhaps a risk using that title but it's also something that calls attention to right. a really severe problem. Yeah, absolutely. The article in there with that title was, was written by you. What kind of feedback did you get from that? It's It's been a lot of very good feedback. Okay. A lot of people have agreed with us. Um, some people have said, that's not the case where I am, uh -huh. which is true. There's you know differences in pathology and in lab medicine around the world. So maybe not everyone is experiencing the same stereotypes, but as a whole, people seem to be coming to us saying, this is what people think of us. To hear more from Michael Schubert, the editor of The Pathologist magazine, check out episode number five of the People of Pathology podcast.